We are back here in Torino, Italy tonight, a city with many proud traditions. It's also a city with one very painful memory. It involves the members of a sports team who were positively worshipped here until something terrible happened. John Paolo Ormezzano never missed a Torino home game as a boy. They were the best of Torino, Italy. And where they, they were the best interpreters of the renaissance of the nation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. Opposite me is Jonathan Wilson. And joining us is Dominic Bliss, feature writer and author of Herbstein, The Triumph and Tragedy of Football's Forgotten Pioneer. Dominic, pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Now, today we've uh, we've got a historical one. We go back to the 40s. 1946-47 Serie A season. It's Torino. And, uh, and the game we're looking at is Torino 5, Atalanta 3. Dominic, why have you chosen this game? Yeah, I think it's difficult to pick a, a perfect game for the Grande Torino because they had five seasons of dominance mm-hmm. in the post-war era, one, one in, during the Second World War where they won Serie A five times in a row. And uh, their manager and the sort of architect of that team was Erno Egri Erbstein, a Hungarian Jew who was in Budapest fleeing persecution from the Nazis during the war. So his time in charge of the team, hands-on, was quite limited to sort of two and a half seasons. And this season was probably the most effective one from his standpoint, where he really stamped his authority on the team and the way they played and the structure of the club. And this game in particular showed an aspect of the team that really fascinated me, which was this ability to dragged themselves out of the doldrums if the game was getting away from them. So it's a game where they were 2-0 up, were pegged back to 2-all by a strong Atalanta team, who who were one of their bogey teams. They beat mm-hmm. them four times across the period, which is remarkable for that Grande Torino side. Um, and there was, a, I suppose, something that happened every time they looked a little bit flat was the a train porter who supported them called mm-hmm. Olmida used to bring his bugle to the games. <laughs> and uh, the the mythology around it is quite strong. Uh, the bugle's still in the Museo del Grande Torino. Oh, right. And um, he would blow this horn yeah. when he wanted the team to play up. <laughs> and it would kind of cut through the atmosphere of the ground. It was quite a small ground <clears> in Philadelphia, <throat> considering this is a major club. And uh, Mazzola, the captain, Valentino Mazzola, he was also the Italy captain, he would roll his sleeves up symbolically. Right, that's it. And it was like, right, that's it, guys, here we go. <laughs> and on this occasion, after rolling his sleeves up, he scored a hat-trick in 10 minutes <laughs> and took the game away from Atalanta 5-2. Yeah. yeah. Well, marvellous stuff. So, we've, yeah, the Bugle Boys of Torino, has, uh, as we're now <laughs> going to call them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a grande Torino side, Jonathan. I mean, it, it's not surprising that you have a very successful side in that era, you know, out in the 30s into the 40s, they dominate tactically very very strong not surprising that there's a Hungarian Jew involved in, in all this of course in Erbstein no I mean Hungary's influence over Italian football is mm. is extraordinary I think between 1920 and 1945 there were 60 Hungarians coached in in Serie A well Serie A or mm. equivalent top division before it changed its name so you know Italy without question at the time looked to Hungary for for guidance on how to play football um, and Erbstein was was one of you're one of the greatest of a great generation of of Hungarian coaches who left Hungary and had a huge influence, um, and you know he, he 
He was at, at various times sort of a technical director, various times the manager, various times the coach. He he was not a coach in the strictest sense of the term, uh, but he is the architect of of this team that wins five in a row. And just to be clear, when we say five in a row, we mean 43, then there is no Serie A in 44 and 45, mm-hmm. 46, 47, 48 and 49. Mm-hmm. So five in a row, but there are two years of that when there was no league title. Yeah. And, and the fifth one, of course, they won while dead because yes. they died in a plane crash with, I think, four games still left of the seasons of play. Um, but they were clear at the top of the league at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were on the way back from a, a friendly game in, in Lisbon against Benfica in May 1949, when the plane they were they were in crashed into the Superga Hill, which overlooks the mm. city they represented and whose name they carried, and which was kind of seen as a representative city of the, the renaissance Italian sports scene. Mm. And uh, every single person on board was killed instantly, including Erbstein and more or less the entire team. There's only one reserve defender who's not on the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary. I mean, just sorry, just so many people who weren't on the flight who might have been. Uh, Kubala. Kubala. Yeah. Kubala was, um, had fled Communist Hungary mm-hmm. uh, and he'd been invited to play in this game as a, as a oh. guest. And uh, the way he, 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 he disguised himself as a, as a Russian soldier and had sort of driven to the Austrian border while his wife went across the Danube in, in Bratislava and they just had a kid and she pushed the baby across in a tyre and the kid gets ill. And because the kid's ill, he doesn't doesn't go on this trip. Blimey. And that, that's what saved him, which is yeah, one of the, the greatest of all 20th century footballers. Mm-hmm. Very nearly was, was on that, that flight. So. Remarkable. I mean, the, the, the Grande Torino story is, is just, you know, it's, it's incredible and obviously ends in, in great tragedy. But... One of the guys who was the you know the sort of architect that the, would he be the chairman? Um, Ferruccio Novo. Ferruccio Novo. Yeah, I mean he he had his eyes on building a, a side and, and building something great. In would he be in the late thirties? Would he taken over? Yeah, in thirty in the summer of thirty eight. Mm-hmm. He, he's worked in the back office at Torino for many years at mm-hmm. this point, and his family owned an agricultural machinery business, which mm-hmm. he you know he wasn't one of the top dogs of Italian industry, but he was independently mm-hmm. wealthy. And uh, although he couldn't compete financially with Juventus and uh, Inter at that time, uh, what he believed in was that at that point, football was ripe for modernising, as maybe Arsenal had done uh, about a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. And and take it, and they could take it away from the other teams by being the best structured team, the best organised team, the best fed team. Mm-hmm. It's know, quite a visionary, Novo, wasn't it? Very much so, yeah. Novo was a visionary and Erbstein was a visionary. Yeah. And Novo employed Erbstein to be his man on the ground, knowing that they shared the same ideas. Because Erbstein had implemented on a much smaller scale something similar at Lucchese, who were uh, playing in the in the regional leagues. And they mm-hmm. got promoted twice in the four years he was there um, and reached seventh place in Serie A. Mm-hmm. So he was seen as like a... a it was almost like an Eddie Howe figure. Yeah, Chris uh, Wilder, you might say. At this say. point. And yeah, and it was, let's take a punt on this guy who clearly knows what he's doing with a club and see if he can repeat it with a bigger budget on a on a bigger scale. And yeah, boy, did he. he you know, he turned them into yeah. unbeatable side almost. So, what, so Jonathan, what was he doing then? What were his uh, what were his ideas, Herbstein? Because a rich footballing 
culture and history, you know, growing up in Hungary in that time. He had a playing career, of course, didn't he? Managing in Italy and so on. Yeah, I mean, his playing career is... is Pretty low key. I mean, he, he, I mean, you, you mentioned in, in your book that he does seem to mention a lot for an average player, an average team. <laughs> so he obviously had a charisma. The yeah. fighting he he a was lot of the time. pretty, yeah. I, I was going to say aggressive, but we'll say go <laughs> fighting. Um, there's like, I, I, I can't remember exactly this, but there's a great line when he, um, he breaks somebody's leg and the, the newspaper just says something like, um, that's uh, played uh, in his usual manner. Yeah, I think so it's something like that. Everton tackled him in the usual manner. Um, so he was a he was an aggressive, physically imposing player. But you know he he didn't play for the great Budapest clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, his sort of his break comes in twenty four five when he goes to Fiume, um, which is a whole sort of complicated issue of, of Italy, which we don't need to go into. Sure. Second tier, but, but that, yeah. that's when he becomes a sort of professional player. Um, but actually, the 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 key the key for him and, and the key for his thinking mm-hmm. is when he he tours the US, um, and the US football is going through in the late twenties goes through this incredible boom. There's a lot going on there. People may not realise. Yeah, I mean, it was five years, maybe not even quite five years. It's it's an ex- astonishing period. Um, that you you have the American Soccer League is is founded. It, it's very moderate success. Uh, then Hachoach, the Vienna-based mm-hmm. Zionist team, go over on a tour, and it is massively successful. You got over forty thousand turned out <laughs> for their first game against a sort of combined New York team, and suddenly you had entrepreneurs realise there is money in this, and then so people they, they stop buying players and they buy players. From Central Europe, because because I mean they buy I think ten of that Hakoak team, uh, you know, don't go home. They, they, you know, they they stay with like Brooklyn Wanderers or New York Giants, but there are a lot of British players there as well, and the British players take the WM, which is sort of just beginning to mm-hmm. kind of to be recognised in, in England. Uh, it, it, you know, the the offside law changes in 1925. There's a whole load of scrambling about how how do we deal with this. A lot of teams start to play with a third back. Herbert Chapman at Arsenal is the one who does it best and realises that if he withdraws a, an inside forward in midfield as well, you get the best balance. So whereas everybody had played a 2-3-5, this shift towards the WM, a 3-2-2-3. And that moves to the US very, very quickly with this sort of British invasion. And this is where Erbstein comes into contact with that for the first time. Mm. And he, he recognises this is something actually very exciting and something that I can do something with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess the the key player for him in terms of uh, conceptualizing that or realizing the potency of a WM or what it what it can do was a player called uh, Kalman Conrad, who was recognized as one of the greatest players of that great generation of Hungarians in the early twenties. Mm. Scored hatfuls of goals in in Hungary and then then in in, in Vienna, uh, but then he, he just can't score in the US. He, you know, he he gets a lot of injuries. He he barely scores. Plays at one of these uh, Central European touring teams, suddenly he's back to the old Kalman Conrad. <laughs> and Erbstein realises, okay, you stick a big, strong English-style centre-half yeah. on him, he can't cope. You have one of our centre-halves, and he's back to being the old player. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think Erbstein was clearly somebody with a very, uh, you know, great football intelligence, a great intellectual curiosity. And what he what he saw in the US opened his eyes to new ways of doing things, and he processes that into his own way of playing. And so he's one of the the first sort of pioneers of Central European counterattacking, mm. um, which can make him sound negative. And I, I 
That's, no, not, no, I, that's I, not correct. I, sure. But he understands the value of the counterattack. And I think it's a, a trip to the to US which does that. He, he wrote a column when he got back from the US uh, in an Italian newspaper, and he was in his first coaching job at Bari. And, uh, so he, he takes a Bari job in 28. That's right, yeah. And he, he talks about the the rest of the players on from this Central European touring team, the Maccabees, they mm-hmm. called them in America. It was Maccabi, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, sorry, just uh, Hakoak had gone over, and then this is an attempt to replicate the success mm-hmm. of that by taking another team mm-hmm. which they called the Maccabees run by a different businessman essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, Erbstein was the only one who wasn't joining in the complaining in the dressing room he he sort of let them all get out of their systems they said it was backwards football anti-deluvian football no, that's how they describe it and uh, he basically said well it's effective isn't it and when he was at Bari he tried to employ a powerful centre forward he, he took a winger who was tall and quick and put him up front and said, let's try and play. We're not as good as the other teams in this division. Uh, Bari were trying to stay in the top half of the league because it was about to be divided. Mm-hmm. In uh, the, the North and the South leagues were about to be merged into one and you had to be in the top half at the end of the season to get into Serie A. So 29-30 is the first mm. Serie A season. Mm-hmm. And he he took this, this system and employed it at Bari. They didn't quite make the cut, but they nearly did. And their best performances came against the best teams where they hit them on the break with this quick winger playing as a centre forward and he caused havoc and he realised that it was a good way for a lesser team to play against a better team and that's how he enjoyed a lot of his early success oh, so, so back you know so so fast forward a few years so you have Erbstein is is getting his uh, his well the Sistema as it was called you know, his mm. system of playing which was sort of WM and influenced by all that has influenced a lot of people and at Torino itself you know, get into the sort of the late thirties into the forties. Novo is beginning to sign players, isn't he? He's beginning to use the cash that he has. He may not be able to compete with the likes of Inter and Juventus, as you say, but he's spending wisely as far as mm. uh, you know. The, what certainly the research I've done, and he's sort of he's building something. Yeah, and it's getting quite exciting at, at, at Torino when they win their first title. Would it be nineteen forty two? Did they forty three? Forty three season. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They they win their first title there. So it's suddenly Torino. Well, I mean, Erbstein's not there. No, forty three. So Erbstein, they haven't met yet. Erbstein is has five years at Lucchese. Mm. Where he's, you know, as you said before, is, is very successful. Mm. Then thirty-eight, he gets a Torino job. But Takes then... them to the top of the league by December. But then the manifesto of race, which effectively banishes all foreign juice from the yes. country, is really clamped down upon in the latter stages of thirty-eight. I think Turin was the last place you could probably get by. Mm-hmm. I mean, he uh, had been interviewed it... for the Lazio job before he got yeah, the Torino yeah. job, and Lazio essentially wouldn't take him because he was Jewish. In, right. in Rome, it would be a lot more of a risk. And in Luca, Luca was a stronghold for mm-hmm. fascist government, which is why he left Luca, mm-hmm. um, Lucchese, to go to Turin. Um, but um, he he is involved in a lot of the scouting of those players that you talked about, Novo buying. Yeah. Um, or there's it's really hard to know who spotted who and how. But his do- his daughter Susanna and various journalists have alluded to the fact that he would scout opposition players from lesser clubs with an eye to signing them for Torino, knowing that Torino couldn't just take the best players. Mm-hmm. They had to take the, the the next generation of best players. So they would come from Triestina, in the case of uh, Grezar, or Venezia, in the case of Loic and Mazzola. And these players were the ones that he put together, or that Novo put together, mm-hmm. with a series of uh, consiglieri <laughs> um, into, into the Grande Torino. 
And Herbstein was was contrary to what Jonathan said. He was always there, but he was always there in spirit. Yeah, right. Um, that's what everyone said. Uh, every manager that came in while Herbstein was fleeing was on the run. They said that Novo just wanted his man, really. And Herbstein was always there in in spirit. I he see. was like a shadow over them. Uh-huh. And, and uh, then they stayed in touch all the way through the war, didn't they? So yeah, Novo helped him to set up a business to keep himself and his brother. Uh, to flourish in the textile mm. industry while they were in Budapest. But I mean, we, we, had, should, yeah. we, we should, first of all, talk about his attempts to get to, to the Netherlands. Yes, of course. Well, when he first left um, Turin in December 38, he and his family had a position waiting in Rotterdam, uh, a club called Xerxes, mm-hmm. not fine or Xerxes. And um, they were kind of an upcoming team in, in the Netherlands at the time. It was essentially a job swap he did, wasn't it? With... And their manager was his friend from... Uh, Budapest Athletic Club, Bok, his uh, the team he played most of his career for, mm. a guy called Ignaz Molnar. And uh, Ignaz Molnar said, well, I quite fancy having a crack at the Torino job. <laughs> They're the best team in Italy. And um, Erbstein thought, well, Holland seems a lot safer than Italy right now mm. for a Central European Jew. And they agreed a job swap. But Erbstein never makes it into Holland. On the border, uh, they're essentially kicked off the train because uh-huh. the papers are checked. Um, although he thought he had everything in order, you know, it was it was a kind of a Wild West time in that respect, and the Germans and the Dutch were not really in the habit, I don't think, of just allowing anyone over mm. the border. So a lot of checks were done. And again, it's unclear exactly what happened, exactly what the trigger was for that search. What You know, the two, the two people who can tell us, his daughters were both very young at the time and traumatised. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we do know that he didn't. The family didn't make it in. So they end up staying in Cleves on the border for several weeks, mm. uh, staying in in the Jew house, uh, as it was called, in what seemed like pretty horrific conditions. You know, just a an old hotel where where the town's Jews were all, all packed and obviously you know subject to all kinds of mm-hmm. of attacks. Mm. Um, but he, he made it back to Budapest. Am I right in saying? Yeah, with the help and, of Novo, right? And in the end. Yeah, you look at what happened to Orpard Weiss, who made a similar journey. It went to Paris first, got to Paris, and then went, you know, went went up uh, into the Netherlands. And Weiss ends up dying at Auschwitz. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't be categorical about these things, but it it may well be that not going into the Netherlands saved his life. Mm-hmm. And 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 when he's in Budapest, you know, he's he was in he was in a sort of a labor camp was he Jonathan well that, that's later i mean he oh, that's a bit later he yeah okay. you know, he's the, the textile business um he seems to have been very successful at that um i think novo was successful in that industry and was able just to pass a lot over and Herbstein and his brother one his brother was an accountant Herbstein had trained to work on a stock exchange from what we can tell and so it seems like they were guys who could run a business mm-hmm. uh, look at the way he ran the football club yeah, I mean, we th- there's a possibility, again, we, we can't be sure, but Gutman may have worked for him. There's, mm-hmm. there's a one reference in a newspaper to the Gutman working for a textile firm. Mm-hmm. There's certainly Evans, Gutman and Erbstein were, were in contact with each other, so yeah, it makes sense to, to believe that. I mean, and it, you know, I think Budapest during the war, it's, it's very hard for us now to sort of uh, understand what it was like. Um that obviously being a Jew in Budapest was precarious. There were a whole load of race laws had come in. You know, Hungary had had a, a huge Jewish population, um, but as as Hungary sort of moved to the right and it, it sort of 
was essentially faced with this choice of allying with the Soviets, allying with the Germans. And they went the German way. They they then imposed a whole series of, of the Nuremberg laws, the various race laws. Uh, and so it was obviously a very dangerous time and lots of restrictions on on um, on Jews. But it also seems to have been a time when it was possible to sort of just get on with your life. That It obviously wasn't great. It was pretty bad, but it was a lot, lot worse in many other places. Mm. And so, I mean, Susanna, the, the elder daughter, says that, you know, their standard of life in Budapest was, w- with this background fear, was it not really any different to Turin. And, you know, they, they went on holiday. She, uh, she was a, uh, became a, a world-famous ballet dancer. She was still going to her ballet lessons. Um, you know, they went to the, the Gillet Baths every weekend. So, that you know, it was, you know, it was dangerous, but it wasn't quite as horrific as it, as it soon became. Mm, OK. All right, let's have a quick break, and after which we'll talk about more about Erbstein and, and Gran Torino. So stay with us. Keeping that spirit alive is why Franco Osola manages this museum, dedicated to the team and to his father, Franco, number 11, who died before his son was even born. The team was like a myth, but the players were humble people, he says, who brought Italians together. Fraternity, that's their legacy. Welcome back to Great Scams on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. So yes, he was in Budapest. Things could have been worse. You know, it seems ridiculous to say, but of course you have to remember the context of the time and the background, what's going on. And then the German invasion happens. Exactly, yeah. And and, and then he's... Is that, I'm assuming that's when he's in the... No, no, still not. Oh, right, no, still not. Okay, so... Um, so the... Uh, his wife, Jolan, and the, the two daughters, Susanna and Marta, they, they managed to... I mean. It, this this story is ludicrous. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. But um, there was a woman called a former swimming champion called Gita Malas, who um, believed she'd been directed by the Archangel Gabriel. We'll we'll leave that aside. Just trust me. That yeah, that, it gets complicated that if happened. you bring the spiritual side. Um, and she believed that she'd been given this sort of task um, by God, mm-hmm. uh, and so she she sort of applies this role as being director of a, of a Catalan convent, which, uh, under the guise of making military uniforms, um, protected loads of Jewish women. And Yolan, Susanna and Marta uh, get positions there. Importantly, I mean, most of them were young women of Susanna's age who was late teens. Mm. And um, Susanna kind of pleaded, actually, for them to let her mum come in, who was older than the people they were letting work there, as the cook. And uh, so she got she rescued her mum that way. Mm-hmm. And her younger sister, Marta, was able then to come in, but just to sort of live there, because yeah. she was too young to work there. So she had to plead to get these to get yeah. her sister and her mum in there. So you got uh, this whole rescue operation, if you like. Essentially, or, 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 yes. Rescue, but it's, hiding operation. Yeah, it's, it's, un, it's sort of Schindler-esque. It's yeah. an undercover yeah, yeah. factory. I mean, it's, it's notionally run by the Vatican. Yeah. but uh, which, which actually does then become important when the um, the the, uh, the Nilash, the, the local fascists, sort of try and raid the place and 
Yeah, so the, the local fascist groups look to um, look to bother them at every given opportunity. These are essentially just roaming thugs, right-wing mm-hmm. thugs, who are looking for people to drag out, preferably Jews, mm-hmm. to drag out into the streets and to, to kill. Essentially, they, they were doing... It was it was that crazy. It was that wild. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, they round up all of the women in in the Catalan convent, and uh, they tell them one by one to phone everyone they know, mm-hmm. uh, relatives, and to tell them all to come to gather there. So anyone who's who's out, you know, according to Susanna at gunpoint, tell your family there's a party here and everyone's gathering, and. Um, she said she put on a, a strange voice so that immediately it would yeah. trigger suspicion um, and then dropped into her normal voice and said in Italian, Aiuto, help me. Mm-hmm. Um, which obviously they wouldn't have understood as Hungarians, mm. the guards. And uh, her dad's on the phone, immediately twigs something very wrong is happening at yeah. this place. And uh, he sends word via the dancing tutor of Susanna. Valeria Dinesh. I mean, yes, she, she is a dancing shooter, but she's a whole lot more. She's, she's a, a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, a huge intellectual figure. She translated Henri Bergson to Hungarian. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, essentially she was Susanna. Her connection to Susanna was that she, she taught her ballerina. She was a mentor, mm-hmm. in a sense. And um, via Dienis, they get word to the papal legate in Budapest, essentially the Vatican ambassador. Mm-hmm. Something's going on down there. You've got to get down there and stop it. By which point they're already being taken onto flatbed trucks and they're halfway down the road to God knows where. They didn't know where. Mm-hmm. They never would find out because a car, an am- am- diplomatic car goes past, stops in front, guy gets out, some discussions are had, paperwork's thrown around. Mm-hmm. The truck turns around and takes them all back. So some someone's intervened. Yeah, It's at a time in the war, 1944, where it's clear who's going to win and who's going to lose the war. And so the last battle they could win, these kind of right-wing fascist zealots, Mm -hmm. was the the victory in their eyes of eradicating the Jews. And um, they could be in some ways threatened with post-war problems, you know. Mm -hmm. There's going to be trials. There's going to be war crimes trials. Mm -hmm. And so generals were confronted with this on occasion by diplomats like Raoul Wallenberg, the Swedish diplomat, it would be one of the cards in their hand to say, do you want to be the guy at the trial who turned down the chance to kill all these people or the guy who went ahead and did it anyway? Mm -hmm. And I think that may well have been what happened here. So, yeah, I mean, the the stories that come out of that time in that country are just, it's unbelievable. Mm. Um, so Erbsheimer at this point has reported. Yes. So so all, all, uh, all Jewish men had to report for these labor details. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has reported for that. Uh, and he ends up, I mean, two remarkable coincidences. One, he ends up in a barracks with Bella Gutman. Mm-hmm. And the other is that the the sort of the the, the capo, the, the sort of the prisoner who's been put in charge of them, had been as orderly during the First World War. When, yeah. when yeah, we haven't even mentioned this about Erfstein, he, he, he not only fought in the First World War, mm-hmm. when the Social Democratic Revolution came, he took over the post office with his... His, I, I don't know, I don't know the battalion, his battalion or <laughs> unit, whatever they're called. Mm. So you know, he's he's literally fought for the Social Democrats in the first, you know, in the chaos at the end of the First World War. Mm. So you know, this orderly is, um, this, you know, this capo who'd been as orderly 
is I think as generous as it was possible to be, which obviously made life a lot a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Hence, he's able to take a phone call from of his course. daughter uh, because this capo would take him on work details mm-hmm. and essentially let him disappear during the work detail. Mm. Uh, so, when does he return to Italy then? Well, so so I mean, he, he they uh, towards the end of forty four. Uh, a load of these work deals are being handed over to to the German authorities mm-hmm. as the Germans were about to retreat, and it it appears to be that Gutmann and Erbstein get word of that and they think, right, we got to get out because you know mm-hmm. once we're not in Hungary anymore, this is it's gone a whole new level of terrible, mm-hmm. and so they they were on the first floor of the barracks and they softened the ground under the window over a series of days, and then one night. They and the other, I think there's six people in the room. They all they mm-hmm. all jump out and escape. And he he appears then to have gone uh, to uh, Yolan's sisters mm-hmm. and and stayed with yeah hidden out with with her. Um and and then Yolan and the two daughters end up escaping from the convent. I mean escaping, fleeing from the convent mm. because they they realise that they might have got away with it once, but the, yeah. The fascists only have to get it right once sure. and, and they're finished. So we kind of, yeah, so after all that kind of stuff, he, <laughs> meanwhile in Italy, football's carrying on and, and yeah. his former side Torino are winning titles and playing great football and so on. When would be the time then that their their paths, you know, they're, they're re- reunited together, if you like? Just at the start of the 46-47 season. Right. Erbstein comes back and uh, there's this emotional reunion with Novo in Via Reggio, which mm-hmm. is quite fitting because it was also the place where Serie A and modern Italian football was decided by a code. Um, and uh, he gets given the title of technical high supervisor, <laughs> according to the newspapers. But Which his family it, aren't with him. We should say that. he's. Are he, they stay, uh, his, I think Susanna had come back with uh, in her own capacity. Mm-hmm. But his, well, Sus- yeah, sorry, Susanna was 18 by then, so I guess uh, it was easier I for her I think she to... married shortly afterwards or yeah, around yeah. that time. Yeah, she married in forty six. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, his youngest daughter and wife don't come with him at this point. Mm-hmm. They they join him uh, a year and a bit later, uh, just as the Iron Curtain appears to be coming down. Mm-hmm. But even that takes remarkable subterfuge. And you know, Marta yeah, Marta sets off. You know, he's got, he's arranged all the papers. Marta sets off as if to go to school. Yeah, and then oh, I forgot my books, mm. and you know, gets off a tram and goes to the station where she meets her mother and gets on a train to Italy. Yeah, so long. And off they go. Uh, so, yeah, in Serie A at the time, as we say, Torino are playing great football. Mm. They're uh, they're enjoying a lot of success, a phenomenal amount of success. It should be said they've built a brilliant side. But of course, now they're they're reunited with Herbstein, and he's there to to physically rather than just uh, spiritually, if you like, uh, yeah. bring his influence to the side. Novo wanted him back. Novo liked mm. him a lot, and um, it was quite interesting to read. Uh, oh, sorry to. To read David Peace's book, uh, The Damned United, mm-hmm. there you go, I got there in here, where you've got the Brian Clough quote was, I wanted to win it better. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. a bit like that. Erbstein comes back and they, oh, we just won the league. You won it by a point. <laughs> I want to win it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, his, his idea was to set about this much higher tempo game that he's been mulling over. Mm. They're going to be more compact off the ball. They're going to, he's apparently become obsessed with geometry. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say they found his notebooks from the time and he's making diagrams about spatial understanding I find it phenomenal this guy's gone through all that and and a lot more of course you can't tell every story in this this period of time but he's gone through all that he's gone through hell and back blah de blah de blah but still that desire 
to yeah. go back to his. To well, maybe his it side. kept him going. Maybe well, that's quite, quite maybe possibly, when yeah. maybe when you're breaking rocks. Yeah, and and um, you're in terrible conditions, wondering what's going on with your yeah. family. The only way to stay in some ways sane mm-hmm. is to think about the thing you love, which is football, and True. to think about what am I going to do to Reno when I get back. What a great way to yeah. keep yourself going when I mm-hmm. get back. I'm going to win it better. <laughs> <laughs> and and my, he did. <laughs> and he did, yeah. I mean, they absolutely ran away with it the next two seasons. Absolutely ran away with it. And the manager leaves, Luigi Ferrero, who was his player mm-hmm. before the war. Um, and he's kind of like a coach, head coach figure when Erbstein gets back. He stays there for the first season, 46, 47. But in the newspapers, they regularly refer to Erbstein picked this player. Mm. Erbstein said this after the game. Erbstein's implementing this mm-hmm. tactic. Uh, he was clearly trying to get this kind of symbiosis between positions that hadn't existed before, where defenders, midfielders and forwards are overlapping in a modern style. You've got proper fullbacks mm-hmm. uh, in the buccaneering modern style. Moroso is the best example. And Moroso doesn't play in this game, the mm. Atalanta game that we're talking about. And their defence is absolutely slipshod. <laughs> They've got a guy called Rosetta playing instead. Yeah. And um, Rosetta, unfortunately... Uh, struggled. He scores an own goal against Atalanta in this game. And uh, by the end of the season, he's gone. But in the stands, we're told, there was a voice calling out, Vai Rosetta, vai, vai, all the time through the game. And the, the, the journalist turned around to see it, who it was. And it was Moroso, mm. who was being rested in that position for that game, <laughs> cheering on the player who'd taken his place. Mm. And they were saying, what, you know, what a guy, the kind of, so, even when he wasn't playing, he managed to win in the press yeah, yeah. by being supportive. You know. <laughs> well, that's very good. So, the, yeah, the game itself that you're talking about, as you say, to to pick one game is sort of fairly difficult, but yeah. it gets to it gets a little bit to the heart of of that Torino side. Even yeah. though they shipped three goals, and and Stein wouldn't have been very very happy about that. Well, they played ultra attacking football, according <laughs> to their winger Pietro Ferraris in that game. Everyone attacked as one, mm-hmm. and they just overwhelmed the other team. They basically treated it like we've got a boxer on the ropes here. Mm. We might take a couple of shots while we're going at it, but we're just going to bury this person into submission. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what they did to Atalanta. They they got them on the ropes and didn't give up. And they always kept their calm in that situation. They had a midfield that was quite, I suppose, like piston-like, quadrilateral, <laughs> they called it, which is essentially just a four-sided shape. Uh, four sided shape. But which is, if you think of the... The WM, the three, yeah, the, two, two, three. You've got like square yeah. of, of the two, two wing two, halves yeah. and two inside forwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, they had all scored loads of goals before Erbstein comes back. And he said the wing half shouldn't be taking these pot shots from range. Mm. I want them to start finding the wingers and the centre forward with passes quickly on the break and they need to be stretching them. And that was how Torino started to play what some people who played at that, against them at that time and later became coaches in the 60s and 70s, would refer to as a kind of prototype total football. That was what Grande Torino did. So when people wonder how Torino dominated Italian football, it's because they were playing something along the lines of what became total football. Mm. Stretch the team when you're attacking them, shrink the pitch when you lose the ball. And this was this obsession with geometry that people said he came back with. Mm. Um, And not to mention that they were also doing... He came back with nutritional graphs. Mm. He proved that southern teams were outperforming northern teams at certain part, physically that is, at certain parts of the season. I don't know what, he didn't have a GoPro. I don't know how he was yeah, doing yeah, right. it. ProZone, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so somehow he managed to to find a graph that, that, mm. that illustrated this. And um, 
they started to import foodstuffs from the south at certain points in the season. Mm-hmm. They started to give out vitamin supplements to the players before games. Um, and uh, everything was very ultra-modern for the time. And it helps when you've got a player like Valentino Mazzola in oh, there, yeah. the league's top scorer that season with 29 goals and widely regarded as one of the best players or certainly strikers Italy have ever produced. Yeah, he was. He was... I mean, I was I was listening to the podcast episode you did with uh, John Bruin on Istanbul. Oh, yeah. And you talked about Stephen Gerrard having this Roy of the Rovers quality. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, yeah. If he fancied it, he could take a game against mm-hmm. even the best teams by the scruff of the neck. And I thought of Matt Sola being that figure in that Torino team, the royest of the Rovers. Yeah, what is it? We he, roll the sleeves up, the bugle sounds, and he's away. And he was away. And in this game, the, the hat-trick he scores, the first one... He meets a floated cross with a header. He's just like, I'm having this. Gets in the box, bang. <laughs> and that, that's to make it 3-2. Three 3-2. Two. Three so they've, they've been 2-0 two two up. Yeah. They that's league right, two, yeah. and then this this Matola header to make it 3-2. Mm. Yeah, so this, it was 3-2 uh, with 56 minutes. Um, and then a few minutes later, he slaps in a long-range strike. The keeper can't stop. Mm-hmm. 4-2. And then the, the final one's brilliant. It's just, essentially, he saved the, the most symbolic one for last. Uh he powered into the box on the left-hand side of the area to meet a pass from Loic, his old mate from Venezia. Mm-hmm. The two inside forwards combined. Uh, struck a shot with the left foot, which the keeper saved, and he was already following in his own shot, and he just <laughs> apparently just bludgeoned it in with his right foot in right in front of the goalkeeper. Yeah, uh, Just, you're not stopping me at the As moment. As was the customs for forwards back then, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was like the cavalry. He just <laughs> rode in, and that was it. He, he was going over anything in his way. Mm. And then Torino, of course, would go on and win the league, and, and it wouldn't be their last title of that little period. But yeah. sadly, of course, you know, only you know a couple of years later, whenever it was, as you as you mentioned earlier, the the air disaster happens, and and that pretty much that whole team and and Erbstein himself and so on were on board, and they all die. Yeah, who who knows what they could have gone on to achieve? Mm. They would have been the Italy team in the nineteen fifty World Cup, mm-hmm. where Italy famously do terribly because they refuse to fly and they don't have any of those players. Mm. But um, they went out to Brazil on tour in forty eight, a, a year before they they died, and uh, a lot of the people in Brazil were saying they could win the World Cup this long. Mm. Yeah. Especially with Matt Sola. Indeed, yeah. Um, Dominic, it's been fascinating chatting to you about this one. Thank you very much uh, for, for bringing that to uh, the Greatest Games table. Uh, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, Jonathan, a pleasure as always. Dominic, nice one, mate. Thanks, and, uh, you know, as I say, it's the, it's the Greatest Games podcast on Football Ramble Daily, everybody, in association with the Blizzard. We'll see you next week. Cheers. This was a Stakhanov production.